Welcome to Journey to the Centre of Food, a voyage of discovery for curious foodies everywhere. My name's Jay Taylor, I'll be your pilot today, along with our foodie navigator, James Winter. Oh, hi! <laughs> Sorry, I, was, I had a mild production panic first. Jay, hit record. Is he recording? But that, clearly he is, so... Hello. (laughs) (laughs) And on today's show, we are delving into the unexpected origin stories behind some of our most famous and loved products. Wandering around the factories, slums, markets and laboratories that have given birth to the foods and drinks that we all adore today. To learn a bit more about the items we all eat but maybe don't think too much about. So join us on a journey to the centre of famous foods. Hello, James. Are you with us now? I'm here. All here. Hopefully you can hear me. Here's a, I can, I can hear you. You're f- hello. You're f- hello. So can anybody hear someone me? Someone I ring home to speak to my dad. Hello? Hello? Because I for a bit. Hello? Hello? Oh, yeah, the, face, the, the FaceTime calls where you're like, no, no, it's a FaceTime call. No, take it away from your ear. No, take it away from yeah. your ear. All I can Cotton see buds is for Christmas, call. Dad. That's what you're getting. Cotton buds. <laughs> oh, dear. And uh, yes, how is your life in the, in, the, in the world of food at the moment? How's the restaurant world treating yeah, you? Yeah, busy. Yeah, busy. Restaurant world is good. Um, it's, it's, it's a tough industry. We say this every week. It's the same old message. It's tough and it's hard and prices are going up and there's a labour shortage shortage and it's uh you know it's it's tough but it's still fun and it's still great and you know we're, we're hanging in there we're still alive every day you know it's about survival you know and being positive and thinking you know we will get through this you know as an industry and as, a, as individuals and i think you know that's where we're at and so we're very pleased to to still be you know serving people food giving people great food experiences and absolutely and, and look and look we know after the after the body blows that were covid and now this sort of headline every week on the newspapers about you know, financial crises. We are thinking of all of our chefs that listen to this podcast out there who are having to, again, just fight through yet another hill that's going to come their way, another wave that's going to break on us with people not wanting to go out and spend money. And it's just, it feels like a sort of slightly false dawn after everyone getting back out there. So, but yeah, our thoughts are with everyone out there who's chopping onions for a living and trying to get through all this. And uh, and we love to hear if anyone, you know, I know, you know, we, we do say this, but do talk, you know, if you've got a story you want to share and talk to us about how you've 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 changed, pivoted, done something weird and wonderful, found an ingredient that's a margin, you might want to share those things because everyone will pile in and, and <laughs> it won't be any profit anymore. But, you know, just something. We're always happy and pleased to, to share those stories because I'm fascinated by, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit of people in the kitchen because, you know, it is, it is, you know, you have to be so agile to keep... At this point in time, keep making money, doing what you love. And today, we are sort of taking a, a slightly different tact from the restaurant world. We are looking de- deep into the land of food, but we're going more sort of the factories here. And we're going into that world of the mass-produced products that I know we both have a kind of fascination with because it, it, it is incredible. It is the Willy Wonka world where things are mass-produced. But also there's hmm. there's origin stories to these superheroes. Well, there was always products. a first product. Yeah. There had to be the first one. Somebody had to make everything for the first time, whatever it is. Yeah. It has to, and it wasn't first million units coming off the back of a machine. Very, well, I, I probably somewhere where it was, but in my head, there's always that first prototype where someone's gone, oh, that's quite good, isn't it? That tastes nice. It's great, I'll isn't try it? And sell a few on my outside on my driveway and see what happens, and then boom! Twenty years later, they're billionaires. Although these are always, they're all, all, but looking into this, there's an awful lot of apocryphal stories out there. There's always, mm. you know, sometimes the idea that oh yeah, we just invented it in a uh, in a in a very controlled way because we wanted to make a profit doesn't quite work. They need to find the romance in the story sometimes. And so finding the truth has been quite tricky, but luckily. We have someone who can find the truth in any historical story. Yes, we're not going to be going on this adventure alone. 
We are once again striding through the mists of time. He is the time-travelling food historian who has been in all the greatest kitchens throughout history. Here he comes, riding in in his, his <laughs> metaphorical giant steed. <laughs> he is the Indiana Jones of the food world and a man with his own catchphrase. You can't say Meltonville without saying... Saying... Mm, it's it Mark like we're beginning of Bonanza, I know, say. I see Bonanza opening credits. Oh, okay, I will put Bonanza music on you this time, Mark. We won't okay. have the Indiana Jones okay. music. No, I, I, I think I'm quite good at... That's a sort of a burning ring of fire, isn't it? Something like that. <laughs> Something along those lines. I have, before we jump into the real origin stories, I've got my own theory, and I'm allowed to have theories because that's my job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're making history up as we yes, speak. Yes. This is history. One year written. at a time. Um, <laughs> I think, and this is just me musing, that most great food uh, inventions were four blokes on a Friday night. <laughs> now, uh, without generalising, most young ladies are sensible and yeah. when working in the kitchen or going into the larder in the past, look at something and go, oh my good God, and throw it away. Yes. So the first blue cheese was four blokes on a Friday night. They've had a skinful, they come home, they look in the <laughs> larder and go, well, it smells all right. Right. <laughs> and give That'll it a do. try. I've, I've got a feeling that an awful lot of things got invented by four guys going, well, you try it. <laughs> you give it a go. You put, your, you put your stick your finger in it. It's always yeah. dares, isn't it? Yeah, go so on, try it. Go on, try it. I can't it. prove that's right, but it's got a lot of truth ringing in it. <laughs> I love it. Well, let's, so the idea behind today's show is what we're going to do is each of us is going to have two or three products that we like and are interested in and have a little origin story to it that we can share. And then, Mark, you can tell us we're wrong. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. <laughs> you can do, do that thing you do very gently and lovely where you go, that's very good, Jay. <laughs> but. but it's not true. <laughs> but, you know, lots of people think it is. Um, <laughs> so, uh, to, so, so that I don't get told off first, James, why don't you <laughs> kick us off? <laughs> oh, right. Okay, here we go. This is like that, uh, that David Mitchell quiz show, isn't it? Whatever. Like, I lie to you. I feel like that's what I'm doing. Or call my bluff. I thought I'd start. Let me hold on. I've, I've picked the wrong one to start with. I don't feel so confident about that one. Uh, here we go. Or, or that one. Uh, here we are. All right. I was going to go through the. You know, I went to a cinema at the weekend, saw that new Tom Cruise movie. And while I was there, I had a frozen slushy drink, right? Oh. And I was thinking about the slush puppy. I love slush puppies as kids. Um, they're still around today. And I wondered about the origins of the slushy frozen beverage which for me is for slush puppy that's a great um, one i would never even thought someone invented that it seems like it's always been in well i mean i mean i think one maybe with mark we've we've talked about the origin of soda fountains and the sort of um uh sort of uh these, these stores that would sell sort of uh frozen uh sort of sodas you know to mimic the kind of healing properties of bubbling water coming out of the earth the soda fountain would emerge and, and sell you a, a beverage in america probably flavored with syrup and all sorts of stuff and and supposedly this is the beginning this is this is the story that i have i've come across which i find you know it's got a, it's got a, a few twists and turns but it's so it's uh, it, uh, supposedly, the, the, the first soda machine, right, which created the first carbonated soda drink, which is slightly different to, to maybe a, just a straight crushed up ice with syrup over, was uh, by a man named Omar Nedlik. Uh, he was a Dairy Queen owner, which was a brand of uh, these soda fountain uh, sort of franchises, uh, where his soda machine broke. And he put all his bottles of soda that he bought, his, his already carbonated soda, in the freezer, came out solidly frozen, and would smash them up and serve them to his, to his customers. And he thought, this is good. You know, I'll, I can do carbonated uh, fizzy drinks. So he, uh, I, I know, 
maybe with three other guys in the pub after after <laughs> a Friday night, started to work on the mechanics of how we can how we can turn this into a into a machine that would churn and to keep these you know um, freezing. And you know the, the technology appeared, and he he got a few uh, patterns in place, and he started to develop logos, and they started to grow, and he created a company called Icy. Um, which uh, I'm just trying to see. I mean, the logo was a kind of polar bear, was a, was a nice mascot. Um, and, you know, it was well designed and came in a paper cup. Now, they started to grow and, you know, they, they as I said, got the patents in place. They started to, to, to sell these machines to other bigger convenience stores like 7-Eleven and slowly the kind of frozen slushy world began to appear. Meanwhile, um, obviously, by this point, lots of people were creating different sorts of slushy machine. It was becoming a bit of a thing, a bit like milkshakes and, and these things where people would pedal around America and try and sell their particular version of this particular machine. Um, a man named Will Radcliffe had bought one of these slush machines at a convention of slush makers, um, I believe. <laughs> what a convention that would have been as well. In 1970, Chicago trade show. Imagine the look of a flared trouser, you know, <laughs> gentleman in that room, uh, selling various slush machines, bought one. And he sat on his porch, not with his three friends, but I think with his wife i'm um, looking for my notes uh and they they, they 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 chatted and they talked about things um and they wanted to come up with a brand and they obviously uh developed the idea of of, of a hush puppy which was very big at the time and turned it into the name they love the name slush puppy so basically he then set about he loved the sort of you know the story here is that he loved the sound of the ice falling in the cup much with the swirling and all the different sounds that would make him you know sort of feel playful and fun and so he liked the idea of it being a slush puppy like his hush puppy shoes which were the cool really? shoe in America in the 70s huh. and that and that was the two things came together now here's for where the, the story for me I like these stories um you know, they, they obviously it was slush puppy, so it had to have a similar sort of idea to puppy. You know, the slush, so it had a floppy dog. It was a lovely, cutesy looking thing, and obviously blew up like no tomorrow because his flavours were good. He had grape flavour, which clearly, you know, this is where the secret of these things. The technology is the technology, but the flavours are, are, are something else. He had the flavours that people wanted. So very, very quickly, uh, he managed to grow a two, uh, £25 million annual sales business. Wow. Um, selling, yes, absolutely. These things happen fast. Yeah. Uh, so that eventually, come 30 years later, in, in, in 2000, uh, he sold the whole business to Cabri Schweppes for best part of, of $20 million, you know, down, you know as, as a payment. Um, and then they were eventually acquired as an acquisition, I think in 2006, by the Icy Corporation, who was, uh, if you remember at the oh, beginning of the story, the Omar Nedlick's original uh, idea, who had clearly been growing and hoovering up the rest of the frozen uh, beverage market, eventually snaffled up by the uh, creators himself. So now Slush Puppy still exists, as we know, but is owned by the original Icy Company, founded by the creator of the slushy drink in the first place, Omar Nedlick. Oh. And they still now, at the cinema, you can go and have some crazy-flavoured slush drink that churns away in the machine. Oh, incredible yeah. colours. And, and still, the recipe for success is still the same, which is you put your straw in, you suck all the syrup up from the bottom, and then all you have is a cup of ice, ice. for the rest of ice. the time. And it's just of like, course. this is rubbish. But it, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. What a, well, you've done some Well, I mean, these, these, are stories, these are stories of entrepreneurial. I mean, I, I always think to build a brand, you have to have 
something else. The product's got to be good. But there are lots of good products that you never get to see or grow or touch or feel. There's something you've got to be able to sell. I mean, this guy, you know, was was driving around, you know, you know, you know with with something in the back of his car that he would turn up and say to you, Jay, you know, Taylor, owner of such and such store in you know Wisconsin, you've got to have my machine in, and that's how these things start. Just you know driving thousands of miles up and down America, just trying to flog them. And then, boom, one day it just catches fire. I mean, that, I love those stories. Oh, it's fabulous. Well, James, that's really interesting. <laughs> isn't that supposed <laughs> is to be true? Isn't that supposed to be my, uh, my, my coming? No, all, all of that is, is, is absolutely uh, is good. And I, I rather, I'd rather like that full circle. But do you want me to take it back a little? Oh, oh yes, please. Let me take you back. Love it. Let me take you back to the time of the Crusades. The 10th century, Norman knights from England, from France, and from Italy are heading down to save, in brackets, Jerusalem. Basically, they pillaged it. But anyway, when they were down there, they talked about the things they found. Uh, They were very keen on bananas. That was something they'd not come across before. Slippers, cushions... (laughs) And (laughs) (laughs) this is a really good list. Yeah, Yeah. and and they talk about the fact that little lads were sent up Mount Hermon, which is a mountain, because it was very high, to collect snow from the snow line, bring it down in boxes that were, one presumes, insulated in some way, and this was then served in cups with fruit syrup to cool you down on the day. Uh, And before that, uh, we've all heard. If you've heard of one. Roman, it's uh, Julius Caesar, and the next one is Pliny the Elder, because he wrote lots. Pliny yeah. the Elder, uh, I mean, admittedly, you don't always have to trust a man who tied a uh, pillow to his head to go and look at a volcano to see. <laughs> so, uh, well, well, stop the rocks hurting him. <laughs> anyway, it's so, just bounced straight off. Uh, so, yeah, there are, you know, you don't always trust everything this man does. Lava proof cushion. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes, he didn't come out of that one very well. But anyway, in his book, <laughs> He talks about a lot of foods, and he talks about the same thing. He talks about how across Rome they send people up some of the higher peaks of the mountains to collect boxes of snow to either serve with things, with with fruit, or to chill down drinks. So it's got a long history before it hits your nice little man in America. Wow, so yeah. the Crusaders could have had a problem with the slush puppy inventing chap. They're like, wait, oh, you nicked our idea? Well, it wasn't even their idea. They nicked it from whoever they turned up to wallop when they were going there. Wow. Oldest is- um, ice cream company in the world? Anyone? Uh, Not yeah, walls. Walls, yeah, of, walls of Jericho. It is. Oh, it is one. Oh, oh. <laughs> We'd like to apologise to our listeners now. For I walked the... straight into that. <laughs> I didn't say Lions of Babylon, so we're all oh, right. Oh, oh, I can hear the groans of oh. the dad guys. <laughs> all right, Mr. Meltonville, come on then. What's your? Give us one of your products well, and the origin story. I, of I it. really wanted to do that um, English classic Marmite. Because for a lot of our foreign listeners, they'll think, I've heard of that, and it's disgusting. What the <laughs> hell is it, and why, why do they eat it on their toast? But a small rodent seems to have rushed into my office and stolen all my notes. So, <laughs> oh, the ro- so, what, so the marmite <laughs> That's might... That's the equivalent of a dog ate my homework. Yeah, the squirrel ate my notes. <laughs> yeah, so, so it's gone. So I, um, I will give you a bit of the Coca-Cola story that I said I would. Okay. Because people, the, the whole world knows this one. So rather than pick something, something called Marmite that everyone wonders why we eat this black syrup. Because um, it tastes amazing, just to be clear. Unless you don't That's like why. it. I love it. But anyway, so um, people are often asking me about various carbonated fizzy drinks flavoured by vegetable products. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. the most famous of those being being Coca-Cola. Yeah. And uh, wh- where does it come from? Are, are the stories true? And 
it's it's got an interesting origin story for something that is now absolutely global and it is a, a fizzy soda I suppose is the the correct term for it because it was invented as a medicine like so many things start off so it was meant to be good for you it's a tonic to pep you up and it was invented uh, in the late 19th century as a, as part of the American um, temperance movement take people off beer and alcohol they, oh, they're wow. very, very okay. big. It was quite big in Britain, but it, it never took off as much as in America. America, it carries on and on. It snowballs and it becomes the um, prohibition in sort of 40 years afterwards. Actually, was this around the same? This was no, around this is long before, before this is yeah. This is 40, yeah, 40 years before. But the movement is growing. This is idea that good church-going Americans don't drink and so there's a lot of a lot of things pushing that and so the inventors of, of this drink decide that they don't want alcohol uh, that's not good for you but they want a tonic that's going to benefit you in many ways so they mix cocaine with <laughs> cola nuts <laughs> now it's, it's it's to say it's coca which is the coca uh, for, for the first half um uh, coca leaf and cola nut that's where it comes from. Oh, I was wondering about the cola bit. Yes. Okay, that the, makes the sense. The cola right. nut is an African nut which is very high in caffeine, so it's going to give you quite a quite a buzz. The cola nut is still in it, and before anyone tries to sue us, the cocaine is not. Yes. <laughs> the, but was it, though? Was it ever in it? Yes, I mean, yes. <coughs> uh, it's processed coca leaves, which is what they chew in the Andes to help with altitude sickness. Okay. Uh, it is not quite the same as the processed illegal drug or medicinal drug, if you work in the, in the drug industry. Uh, but the e extract of the coca leaf, if not processed as they process it today, uh, contains an amount of cocaine. That's how you get the, the body to um, run at a, a sort of higher pace for, out for altitude sickness. It sort of peps you up. It was 1903 that they finally took the cocaine out of it. I found a little um, bit of science somewhere. It, uh, a bottle of original coca-cola contained nine milligrams of cocaine which is not a massive amount it's not a uh, naughty not a small amount it's either, not it's it? not a naughty person that used to work in advertising's amount but it's um <laughs> uh, it's it's enough to to notice they took it out in 1903 so it's been gone for over 100 years and what they did was they processed the plant matter slightly differently to get rid of the cocaine first and then use the plant extract, what's left, basically a mulch, to give you the flavour that they needed for that. And nowadays there is one company, a pharmaceutical company in America, that processes the coca leaves for Coca-Cola. They process them so that the Coca-Cola department get the, the mulch, the flavour, and mm. the, um, the cocaine goes to the medical industry because it's used in various drugs. So it's completely extracted. There has not wow. been any, any in there since 1903. It's, it, all they want is the flavour from the leaves. But there's this one company whose job it is to extract the cocaine from the cola leaves so that it can go off to make a fizzy drink. The other one that I think is uh, quite fun about this, I mean, the, the globalisation of that is exactly what James was saying. Good product, good taste, good marketing. All three of those need to work. Otherwise, if you've just got a good tasting drink and no one knows about it, it's never going to fly. So it, it had. Do you think all... it tasted the same? Do you think the, no one, the original? I've no idea. You'd, you'd, it, have to, you? you'd have to talk to them, and I presume. Oh, wasn't there a massive taste change in the 70s or 80s where they had to go back to the old recipe? They had to go back to classic because people didn't like the change. You wonder in if flavor. the one that we recognise, you know, the, whatever we call classic, would know. have been very different to that. I mean, Maybe. I presume they still had sugar in it, though, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, 
very sweet. Part of um, it. The American one has always had high, high fructose corn syrup in it. Okay. Whereas some well, other plants around the world don't use the same sugar, so there might be a slight sugar taste change. I don't know. You'd have to have to talk to someone who tastes soft drinks around the globe. That's yeah, a different, different pod- different countries, yes. aren't they? Yeah. The other one is the bottle. If you want another orange origin story to finish this one off, you need the bottle because everyone knows the Coke bottle, which it wasn't in originally. It's a later edition. And the factory decided they wanted something quite iconic. And the story is that one of their designers, one of their advertising team, one lot were working on the logo that is now universal. That's a classic piece of um, lettering. But the guy working on the bottle had this absolute revelation. It's made of a cola nut. I'll make the bottle look like a cola nut and that'll make us unique. So he went to the library and he got a book of you know, plants and seeds, one of those big fat books full of every plant in the world. Yeah. And he got to the cola nut and it's boring as anything. <laughs> it's <just> horrible <laughs> little round seed. But on the page next to it, this is the lucky part because um, alphabeticals, sometimes alphabetical order works. Next to the cola nut was the cacao nut. Mm the pod the wrinkly pod of chocolate which is a ridged and knobbly shape and so he took that instead is that true as far as we know that's (laughs) fabulous i love that you know i'm not doing that that's rubbish i'm just gonna go to one next door to it's all basically the same thing it's all nuts that'll do (laughs) that's fabulous oh what a great oh that's a really good fact that one isn't it really good that some some small rodent ate my marmite notes isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah well we got decent coca-cola okay so mine is not mine is not um necessarily where it was invented is why it got its name is nachos um and specifically for our mexican listeners i'm going to murder some mexican names and words in this um but it's the idea of the story behind nachos uh, it begins in 1943 in a in the city of piedras negras in mexico uh in a, in a, re- in a restaurant called the victory club owned by rodolfo de los santos the, um Apparently, the wives of 10 to 12 U.S. soldiers arrived at the restaurant after a shopping trip. The restaurant had closed for the day. Uh, their, their husbands were stationed in, a, in, in an amazingly uh, American military-sounding thing called Fort Duncan nearby Eagle Pass, where I imagine they did something terribly heroic, because you would have to, if you were in Eagle Pass, do something awfully heroic. Um, but even though the place was shut, it didn't stop them from being welcomed in. And the, club's ma- and the restaurant's maitre d' uh, was a guy called Ignacio Nacho, Ania, and he came up with a new snack for them uh, with what he had available in the kitchen because the place was shut. So he's like, you know, it's like, like, oh God, what am I going to do? Right, I'm going to run in the back. So he got some tortillas and some cheese. Uh, He cut them into triangles, grated cheese, wanged them in the oven for a bit, topped it off with some jalapenos, sent them out to the diners. uh, And he obviously just made up the name because he had no uh, no idea. So he just uh, went, his name was Nacho. He just went, what's it called? He said, oh, Nachos Especiales. And from that point, it was then printed in a cookbook in 1954. Uh, and he, when he died in 75, he had a plaque erected in his in his hometown for this very uh, very thing. And apparently, I didn't realise this. October the 21st is declared International Day of the Nacho. Um, so why not the origin of? Well, it is the origin of the food as well. I, I hope suppose. his plaque is nacho shaped. Oh, oh it'd be I'm good, saying. wouldn't it? It'd be good. <laughs> yeah. It was, and it wasn't. It was only his. I, I don't know why his um, nickname was Nacho in the first place. I'm not sure what that actually means. Uh, 
in in Spanish. But uh, but yeah, so there we are. That's where that's where the that's where the nacho comes from, which I thought was quite interesting. That's explained something to me now. That's good. See, I've learned something because I didn't I didn't know that. Uh, I first tried nachos with some American friends, probably. Oh, how long have they been in Britain? Because they're they're not that long that we've had the nacho cheese flavored thing. So we've probably only had them twenty years. So it's a little bit before that, and. I'm with some Americans, I'm working over there, and they got out a bowl of nacho chips, and I'm all confused. And I said, well, what what, what flavour are these? And they went, nacho. And I said, well, yeah, but what, what is nacho? And they couldn't explain it. They just said, yeah, but it's nacho. That, it's, they're, they're nachos. And I, we, we went back and forth for five minutes while I tried to uh, get them to explain what a nacho cheese was or where it came from. And they couldn't. They just said, well, it's nacho. It's what we've it's all that grown up with. Of that. That's that flavour. So you've now explained a mystery to me. <laughs> and it turns out it turns out, nacho is the shortened name of his name, which was Ignacio. Ah. So uh, am I saying that right? Yeah, Ignacio, Ignacio, Ignacio. So nacho is the shortened... Ignacio. Yeah. So it's like calling, you know, John. <laughs> I'll call them John. It's the same as if we did it over here. It would be like, oh, they're called the John Specials. And now everyone eats, you know, get me a bag of Johns. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> All right. It's work. It's working for me. Yeah. If, you can make, if you make something delicious, we'll call it John. Yeah. I'm, I'm a crispy, salty snack for the bar. I'll have a bag of Johns. Two bags of Johns. It's quite good, actually, isn't Put it? Cheese and it? onion flavour. Yeah. No, just the original, please. Just the original John flavour. I, I can't order a, a, a tray of loaded Johns, though. <laughs> you could try. Okay. <laughs> I like it when they melt extra cheese on top of John. I mean, is it on the John? Cheesy Johns? Oh, I love Cheesy Johns. Oh, so James, oh uh, the oh wheel turns. Uh, the wheel turns back to you. Give us another origin. Yes, story. well, yeah, for my my second one, um, coming back. Uh, uh, Back across the water, back to, to dear old Blighty, to England. I thought I would just briefly whiz over the incredible um, and in the end, mildly sad story of Coleman's mustard, uh, which oh. for me is the mustard. Yes, you know, I mean, I love French mustard. I love Dijon mustard. I love all the different types of wonderful French mustards. But for me, being Englishman, Coleman's English mustard is at, at times anything I need. You know, and I know there is an American brand, Frenchies, which is equally as yellow, but the yellowness of Coleman's mustard is is it. And so the brand itself, very simply, began in 1814 when uh, a Norfolk businessman, uh, Mr. Jeremiah Coleman, um, oh, you can see where the name came from, uh, <laughs> began making mustard at his watermill near Norwich, of uh, of course, uh, near the village of Bamba. Um, he blended. I mean, he was all about flavour. He must have had a good palate because you know mustard isn't. You know, Mark can can probably tell us the, the journey of mustard as a, as a flavouring, but it's it's been around as a as a as a tangy seasoning for 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 centuries. I would have thought. Um, but obviously he had a knack for blending and, and he wanted punch. So, you know, he found his blend, a mixture of sort of brown and white mustards. And, and you know, these days they even had a bit of turmeric to get that colour um, super yellow these days. But then it's a, it's a really fiery mustard. Um, and, and he began producing it uh, at his mill, apparently at Stoke Holy Cross Mill, which I believe might even still be there if you want to go and have a look. I mean, if, if I'm quite intrigued by Coleman's mustards now. Um, and slowly it grew as a small family business in Norfolk. Uh, he, he brought, I think it's his adopted nephew, I think I read, uh, James, uh, into the business. So it became J and J Coleman. And then I think eventually, later on in the business, uh, the son of James, called uh, <laughs> Jeremiah James, so just merged <laughs> the two names, took on the business. And that's when it took off. That's when, by that point, production had grown. It was employing thousands of people, you know, you know, outside Nor- uh, Norwich. And, and it was becoming, you know, a, a big British business. It's that time of great industrial expansionism, you know, and, and they, 
obtained a royal warrant from Queen Victoria, became the royal mustard provider. Oh, wow. Um, I assume other mustard providers were available, but Queen Victoria um, chose uh, Coleman's mustard as, as her own. And apparently even Napoleon III, I assume he must have come to England to try the mustard, uh, dined on it. And it was one of those sort of great success stories of the 18th, 19th uh, century, um, all the way into the 20th century, obviously. Um, I'm just flicking through. If I'm, I'm winging it now, you can tell, because my notes have stopped. Um, uh, where was I? Here we are. Um, and so, you know, really it sort of started to expand and, and, you know, the world grew bigger and it got imported and exported and grew as a, as, a, as a brand in the UK. And, you know, I guess at its peak in around the 19, beginning of the 1900s, turn of that uh, 20th century, it was hoovering up other companies like Keen Robinson. So at one point they were making the barley waters that we all know and so on and so forth. Um, and, and really, you know, sort of remained as a mainstay of the, the grocery shelf all the way up until 1995, when eventually it was hoovered up by the biggest, one of the biggest sort of, you know, FMCG things in the universe, Unilever. It's Unilever, Just isn't ho- it? Yeah. Hoovered it up. And this is where, you know, in, in many ways the sadness begins, because obviously Unilever, you know, they love these products, but they don't see the romance of remaining in, in Norfolk and producing in Norwich. So eventually they left um, oh. in January 18. Coleman's uh, left Norwich to be produced at other production bases, uh, one in Burton-on-Trent, but the other obviously in Germany, that well-known uh, sort of part of Norfolk, <laughs> uh, <coughs> leaving several thousand um, you know, very unhappy workers to find new things I to do. I so, that. So it ends, you know, with, with one last very English hurrah, which is in 2019, apparently, the Coleman's factory in Norwich rolled out its very last jar of mustard from the production line, and instead of having a best-before date, it was changed to Nor- Norwich's last but it's finest. Oh, oh, I like that. What a That's shame. Sad. Yes, with a date. And that was it. Yeah. I mean, it was no longer, it's no longer produced, I believe, in, in you know, That's in terrible. Norfolk at all. But it's still a great mustard. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I stand by the product, just, I, you know, <laughs> the, the story ends on a whimper. Well, everyone always asks me whenever I'm giving lectures or talking in places, they always talk about, oh, of course, we didn't have spice in England in, in, in the distant past. And I have to remind them, mustard is the English spice. It grows naturally here. We've always had it. It has been the flavour, the spicy, hot flavour of English food before all of those Asian and South American flavours came over. We have two indigenous spice flavours. We have mustard and horseradish, and they're both oh. mighty fine. <laughs> Wow, I never even thought about mustard as being our indigenous spice. That's really cool when you say it like that. I just mm. didn't consider it. I mean, obviously, it's just it's just one of those things that's already there, but you don't even think of it in that mm. in that context. Oh, I'm going to get a little <laughs> Union Jack out next time. I eat that. That, well, get get yourself a little bit of Coleman's mustard. Or yeah. obviously, you know, it's, yeah. try and find it. But, find but, an but old can. <laughs> yes, although I think there's been a research. Well, there's always been a research in artisan things, but I think in mustard production, I think there is a bit of a kind of. You know, you'll find some people making mustard. You know, in a small production house somewhere now, but you know, English mustards. I think there's 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 a kind of wave coming where you can find a bit like it happened with tonic water and all sorts of things. I think people are slowly reclaiming some yeah. of these brands. I'm gonna have to keep mine, you see, because having a foreign background, we've tended to eat um, Dijon style mustards, and mm. uh, therefore the the little 
can of Coleman's mustard in my larder. I think I've had since I was six. So it's the real thing. I'm very proud yeah. of that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> just, okay, so now, chaps, we're running out of time here. So what yep. we're going to do is I'm going to whiz through one and we can finish with yours, Mark, because mm, yours will be the, the hurrah at the end. And uh, mine okay. is another a British classic. Uh, mine's a digestive biscuit. Uh, the story of them, which is 125, well, it was 125 years. Uh, it, they're very, very old. Um, but what I like about them is some of the advertising campaigns. So much like Coca-Cola, as you said, um, they were they were devised uh, as a health benefit. Or at least that's the advertising tack they took. Uh, the uh, the recipe, which apparently still remains a secret, was devised by Sir Alexander Grant in 1892. They're now obviously know uh, owned by McVitie's, um, but they had some brilliant vintage adverts. Um, and the marketing ploy they had in 1829 was uh, all around health. And this is what it said: these biscuits when genuine, are taken regularly by families, have the good property of keeping the body in a regular state, and in great measure supersedes the necessity of having recourse to medicine. Which, as you know, just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It's just like, you know, That's what Nike, I was just do it. I'm loving it. I'm loving it versus that. I think that, I think it's, and uh, there's a brilliant picture of a, a, of a lady, you know, fantastic sort of housewife in black and white from, uh, this is later on now. She's saying, and I must remember to buy some McVitie and Price biscuits in her in her way, which is which is fabulous. And then I I discovered that um, there was an advertising campaign. Now I can't remember her name, but it was this lady who was a famous chef uh, and uh, a beauty as well. Do you remember? Do you know her name? The lady, Jane Asher. That's ah, it. Yes, Jane yes, right. Asher. Have Have you ever seen Post- this picture? Which is Jane Asher covered in nothing but chocolate a chocolate an entirely chocolate dress oh my lord yes i and know that's actually chocolate uh, that's actually chocolate that's chocolate and the idea of it is that's her advertising uh, the chocolate digestive and, it, and she says in the tagline below below it i love to eat digestives dressed in thick milk chocolate and rather coquettishly she's there in, in wearing nothing but chocolate which i thought was a fantastic advertising campaign um so while the origin story of the biscuits <laughs> is a little bit okay it's a secret recipe devised as a health is supposed to help your digestion uh, i think the advertising is what sort of um and then look, there's another one of her as well, with no clothes on at all. Sort of hiding. Well, hiding I think hiding. you've clicked on a different link. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I've eaten my biscuits, and now <laughs> she's hiding behind a chair, going, "So rich, I love to eat them with nothing on." And I have to say, a packet of digestives has never looked quite so appealing. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm quite impressed. She's going to catch her death like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So there's not enough. I mean, this is almost like the Cadbury's flake adverts. You remember that in the bathtub? It's mm. sort of uh, yeah. I don't think they're quite advertising the same no. anymore. So that yeah. is the kind of origin of the advertising behind one of our our greatest brands. Mark, take us home on our journey. Oh, through what can these we finish stories? with? I'm going to change my mind now. You see, oh, there's all these these stories around. I'm going to mention very briefly something so British that nobody else has it. And someone will uh, write in from Australia saying, we have it. Well, that's because you have the same foods as us. Get over it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for listening to our Australian (laughs) audience who have now left. (laughs) Jubilee, you're allowed to be last year, Australians. Golden syrup. Something that anyone anyone who grew up in the UK or the Antipodes will be uh, familiar with that we don't realise doesn't exist anywhere else. Does it? I was wondering about this. So uh, So, so in America, they won't know what it is. Well, no. So they're going to be saying things like, oh, do you mean molasses? No. Molasses is is dark um, 
uh, cane sugar unrefined. Oh, so you mean something like... Um, maple syrup. <laughs> maple syrup, which is a, a, a different plant. Or corn syrup. They were saying, do you mean corn syrup? No, it's not corn syrup. They have refined sugar syrups. They have something called amber sugar syrup in America. No, it's not that. Um, <laughs> everything that you can mention, they'll start saying, oh, so it's called treacle. No, it's not called treacle. <laughs> we have treacle. We have cans of treacle. We have cans of molasses. Treacle is an Arabic word, theoriac. It means medicine, back to everything you keep saying. Um, but it's not that. It it's is golden syrup. It is golden syrup. It is uniquely English. And they worked out that if you basically cook down the stuff you were going to throw away and feed to pigs when making, <laughs> when making, this is this is back to your four guys out of yeah. the beers. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is either. Uh, well, no, no, it's not either. It is Victorian entrepreneurism. Everything James was talking about. People looking for an angle, looking for something to do. We'd now uh, applaud it as sustainable, as recycling, as making sure we don't waste. So it's all good in those levels you get a lot of residue from making molasses from making treacle and that residue uh, some scientists that worked for uh, the great abraham lyle of tate and lyle fame ah, worked yes. out that you could um invert the sugars from that i'm not going to read about how you invert sugars it's a chemical process basically you're creating um mixtures of sucrose fructose and glucose all the different complex sugars that are in there uh, are, are brought together and they produce this liquid this golden amber liquid which is not like anything else in sugar production and if you're a british child it goes on your sponge pudding and it's brilliant oh my god and there's something just the look of it is when you open up you know that scene out of pulp fiction when they used to open the suitcase and the golden glow came out on them there's something about a golden syrup it looks fantastic especially when it's pouring off the spoon because it just sticks mm. the spoon and pours and obviously it has the label which is the most mm. sort of slightly unappealing label the, you can um, ever imagine the get, lion with the bees coming out, out of, of it. Out, out of strength came for sweetness, sweetness yes it? and it's the supposedly the guinness book of records and they've never lied to us uh, tells <laughs> us that it's the oldest logo left still in still extant it's it's one of the oldest logos and anyone who actually looks at it goes yeah there's a dead lion on this can but yeah you never it, really until someone points out you never notice it's like oh yeah it's I, I supposed to be got a lion um, yeah isn't it daniel and the lion and and he kills a lion and he comes back a week later and bees have moved into the carcass so he realizes you know it's it's very biblical it's death and rebirth it's all of those things but um mr lyle was very religious and so took a took a parable as his logo huh. um yeah it's um it, it's it's an interesting product because any time i try to explain it to anyone anywhere outside of britain they just stare at you and then worse still if you tell them it's a newtonian fluid you know and that doesn't work either <laughs> i have to say though for all our foreign listeners like you're always pushing your dodgy stuff on us like your cans of fermented uh, fish from Norway which you sent to us and your, your, your weird Japanese chocolates which you sent to us and some of the dodgy stuff from America can we give you something in reverse which you're going to love please just go online and buy yourself a can of golden syrup oh, and you're yeah. welcome there you go just take that put it on your sponge put it, put it on and it, basically there's nothing you can't put on that won't be made better because of having golden syrup on it yeah. I mm. think it's incredible um Oh, gosh. I mean, there's not, a, there's not a nasty product amongst these ones either, is no. there? I'd, I'd happily put some golden syrup on some nachos, dip it in my Coca-Cola, <laughs> and, and put on my chocolate dress. 
Um, but chaps, unfortunately, this week we have run out of time, but I think we will revisit this on a future pods when we can lure you back through your uh, time-travelling portal, Mark, because I think it'll be fun to look into Lovely. some more products. Um, but for this week, thank, thank you ever so much, Mark. I really appreciate thank you. it. Good seeing you. And James, until next week, enjoy your digestive biscuits. Pep. Speak thank to you, you soon. Thank you, I will. Take care. Cheers. Bye.